Welcome to the Sioux Nation Podcast. I'm Jill Funky, Communications Manager at Sioux Nation Ag Center, and we are so glad you found us. Sit back and listen as our staff hosts welcome guests from all aspects of the livestock production industry. It's our mission at Sioux Nation to arm regional, small, and medium producers with all of the resources we can put in front of them. And now, on with the program. Hello and welcome to the Sioux Nation Podcast. I'm your Sioux Nation Ag Center staff host, Jill Funky, and Rob Patterson, Vice President of Innovation and Commercialization for CBS Bio Platforms, joins us on the program to talk about soybean meal and trypsin inhibitors. Thank you for being with us today, Rob. It's my pleasure. So first of all, would you like to explain to our listeners the role that CBS Bioplatforms plays in ag, both in the United States and worldwide? Yeah, no problem. CBS Bioplatforms is a feed additive company. We were incorporated in 1984, and since that time, we've been a front runner uh, and a leader in enzyme application for animal feeds, poultry, swine, ruminants, and also have a number of innovations on other technologies that are really best suited to replace traditional antibiotic and therapeutic technologies with our all-natural options. We play that role in the U.S. in a growing fashion. Uh, We're an established company in Canada based in Calgary, Alberta, and currently we're selling our technologies in over 20 countries around the world. So today we are talking about trypsin inhibitors, and so Can you explain for us the factors that have kept soybean and meal prices strong in the last two years? I guess let's start there. Yeah, it's a complex issue. There's a lot of different factors. Some of the the ones that we can touch on that relate to what we see on a daily basis, you know, we're coming out of, we're a year probably roughly out of COVID and uh, we're still seeing that bullwhip effect with supply and demand. Uh, not quite aligning in ways that we were used to seeing in the past, say a couple years ago. And so that's coming back to what we would think of as normal. That's been bullish on prices. In addition to that, we're seeing growth of the soybean meal facilities, specifically in the in the U.S. So there's more crush facilities being built, which means that you need more soybeans coming in. And so that's been pressured and putting upward pressure on soybean meal prices. And really for that, it's that demand for the oil from soybeans for biodiesel production. And we can't forget what's going on in Eastern Europe. With that conflict that's happening, the Ukraine being a major exporter of grains as well as Russia, and not directly in terms of huge amounts of soybean, but that conflict itself, it seems to be strengthening soybean meal prices. We've seen that over the last year and then the other points strongly over the last couple of years. Right. So you're talking, you just mentioned the price of soybeans. So the price of soybean meal has prompted a lot of producers to search for less expensive options for their protein sources. And so can you tell us what has been the result of those searches and what alternatives exist? Yeah. Again, we're seeing that in the States. 100% agree with you. We're seeing it north of the border here in Canada as well. I guess it really depends. It depends on the product being produced, you know, be it swine, poultry, and then whatever vertical within that. And there's a lot of different variations. But what we're seeing a lot of is the low-hanging fruit. So that would be, you know, if you're using conventional soybean meal. So, you know, when I say conventional soybean meal, I mean solvent-extracted soybean meal, 46% protein, 48% protein. But what we as an industry has been used to for, for decades uh, the first easy swap on that is people are used to soybean, the root ingredient. So let's take that and then we'll look at what else comes out of it. So you'd look at extruded soybeans, the whole bean being extruded. We're seeing swaps over to 
the whole bean that's been somehow cooked or heat treated or what we would call roasted. And then we're also seeing, there's a lot of different names for it, but essentially what it is is express soybean meal. So this would be really in line with cold pressed soybean meal. So it's more of a soybean meal cake, a little bit higher in fat, lower in protein. So these seem to be coming in as kind of the first option to swap out on soybean meal, conventional soybean meal. What we're seeing north of the border and maybe in the northern states in the U.S. to move to canola meal, you have 36-38% protein, a little bit higher in the fiber, that's being looked at as well. And then deeper down, there's a lot of other options. The animal proteins, I think, are being looked at a little bit harder and some of the other plant-based meals or protein sources, either even up to that protein concentrate level, but once you get to that north of 50 uh, to 55% protein, that cost starts really being looked at a little bit harder. Do you want to weigh in on the advantages of any of these alternatives? Being from Canada, I got to push the canola. We're the biggest producer of canola meal in the world, so there's advantages there. So if you're looking to swap out a conventional soybean meal and you happen to be in a canola-growing region, there's the advantage of locality cost of transportation should be a little bit lower. Hopefully that offsets some of the price increases on the soybean meal. But, you know, the back end of it, canola meal tends to be priced as a basis to soybean meal. So sometimes there's not a lot of price advantage. It comes down to an availability advantage. So if you can't readily rely on that soybean meal source because someone with deeper pockets is buying it up, they don't care what the price is, then you do have that advantage to availability of canola meal. So there's an advantage there. You know, depending on what you're feeding, you know, the last 10 years or so, we've seen a reduction in price positions on these small-scale extruders. You know, it used to be 20 years ago, you had an extruder. This is a, a big capital expenditure, and um, there were big units, right? They needed a lot of power. They needed a lot of space to, to run them. Now you're seeing these smaller extruders being made available in the market. And so one of the advantages on the extruded soy is some instances people are just putting that investment up and, and realizing now with the prices, the conventional meal, what they are, the payback period on that extruder is, is a little bit lower. So, you know, there's some of the advantages to be had on that small-scale extrusion. In North America, the expeller-pressed, that cold-pressed soybean meal, pardon me, and the roasted or cooked full-fat soy, probably not a lot of advantages unless feeding some sort of a niche livestock operation, you know, be it non-GMO or organic or something like this. There could be some some advantages there as well, or, you know, when the whole cost of production is, is examined. Now, you recently wrote an article cautioning against the level of trypsin inhibitors in the alternative protein sources. So can you define for our listeners what is a trypsin inhibitor and what happens when it is not produced in sufficient quantities? So the trypsin inhibitor itself is a compound that the plant produces. And if you look at it from the point of view of the plant, what it's trying to do is it's trying to protect itself from the herbivore. So from the animal that's going to consume it. Now, what trypsin is, trypsin is what that trypsin inhibitor is is inhibiting, right? It's it's reducing its activity. And and trypsin is a digestive enzyme that animals produce, birds produce, mammals produce. And trypsin is Produced in the in the pancreas, it's excreted into the small intestine, and it's one of the primary protein digesting enzymes that help break down dietary protein into smaller portions so that they can then be absorbed by the animal. And if trypsin is inhibited, what that means is there's the amount of trypsin that the animal produces is still going to be produced. It's just not going to have the same effect in terms of breaking down the protein consumed by the animal. So that's what the trypsin inhibitor does. So. 
you can imagine what the, what the next steps are. So if you have a pig or a turkey or a chicken, that's, its body produces trypsin in an attempt to help break down protein, but that's not being broken down in sufficient quantities from these trypsin inhibitors, well, the protein's going to flow right through the animal. So a lot of protein in that hindgut, you're going to have some dietary disruptions, junk diarrhea, wet litter, and then also the animal's not going to be able to meet its protein requirements. And so then that can affect lean, lean tissue growth. In the opposite scenario, when livestock have had an excessive exposure to a trypsin inhibitor, what's going on there? That's something we have to be mindful of as well. So if you have too much trypsin inhibitor, so for example, it's an organic operation, conventional soybean meal has been exchanged for extruded soybean meal or extruded soybeans, the trypsin inhibitor levels are really high, that animal has a lot of trypsin inhibitor that they're consuming in the diet, the trypsin that the animal's producing is going to be a, at a little lower level. That protein's not going to be digested to the same degree. Amino acid requirements aren't going to be met. Bean tissue growth might not be as high or to the expected level. You might also see it on a growth performance. So the conversion's being affected. The rate of gain on a daily basis might go down. So that you're, you might be looking at a few extra days to market, or you might be looking at having to pump a few more pounds of feed through the flock, or, or hundreds of pounds of feed, depending on the exposure level. So it, it's really, a, it is an important thing. We think about flipping in these soybean meals too expensive, well, I'm just going to go look at the next thing. And if you're not looking at the trypsin inhibitor, you might be taking one step forward and two steps back at the same time. So how have trypsin inhibitors been managed in conventional soybean meal? Conventional soybean meal, trypsin inhibitors are, are managed with heat. So go and examine what a conventional soybean crushing facility looks like. The beans come in, they go through some processes, and a solvent is used. Whatever that solvent happens to be is pumped onto the ground bean, and that solvent removes the oil. But the solvent's at a high temperature. So that temperature from the solvent that through the other processes that happen in the crush facility deactivate the trypsin inhibitors that are present in soybean. And that heat process, what we call, deactivates the trypsin inhibitor. The trypsin inhibitor is a protein. It's a relatively small protein. It, in that heat that it gets exposed to denatures it. So it needs to be in a certain structure. It needs to be in a certain configuration, the trypsin inhibitor, and, and exposure to heat changes that so that it's no longer active. So that's how the industry managed this this challenge hit from a historic basis. And so when you look, maybe I'd like to get ahead of myself to your next question, but, you know, if you look at the non-conventional soybean type products, it's expeller or extruded soy, Mm -hmm. you still have that heat. But the consistency and the process involved in exposing that ingredient to the heat to deactivate the chips in the hibber wouldn't be at the same sophistication as a large-scale hundreds of thousands of tons, millions of tons uh, crush facility. So can you tell me what can we do to manage the risk of trypsin inhibitor exposure? The number of ways we can go about that from the feed industry. I think really the first thing is to understand that it is an issue. So if we've been reliant for a long time on conventional soybean meal and the producers of that soybean meal delivering a high-quality product that has a trypsin inhibitor level below a certain threshold that's kind of been set out by industry, be it the soy councils or the exporting councils or, or the producer groups, need to rethink this. So getting a handle on how much trypsin inhibitor is in an ingredient is something that we can do. So we can do that in a number of ways. We, so there's quick test kits that are available that be quantitative. We, we can analyze every load or every tenth load, manage the supplier, and, and understand how much trypsin inhibitor is coming in on an ingredient basis. 
So that's one way, right? Understand how much of trypsin inhibitor is in each individual ingredient, uh, rank order by prevalence. The other way we can do it is, is understand how much is going to come into the diet. It's one thing to have a high amount of trypsin inhibitor in an individual ingredient, but if that ingredient is low occlusion in the diet, then our, our risk of overexposure to trypsin inhibitors is, is going to be low by association. So we really have to understand how much trypsin inhibitor is in the diet as well. That analysis standpoint, understanding the amount in, in the diet and in the ingredient is one, one key way we can help manage trypsin inhibitor exposure. Is there any other ways you'd like to talk about? Yeah, the follow-up to that is understanding how much is there, so quantifying to the best of our ability, understanding each beet production system is different from large scale down to small scale. The, the analytical aspect is, is something we can do. There's other ways we can do it too. The costly way is, is you could heat treat every batch of feed that's produced. That might not work. Now, if, if you're pelleting every single pound of feed, that might be something that mill could do or a feed producer could do. That heat that's associated with the pelleting process, that could be looked at as a control point to help manage trips and pitchers as well. That's one way. Some sort of physical intervention. What we're championing at TBS BioPlatforms is, is another way where we can actually use enzyme technology technology specifically to enzymatically manage trypsin inhibitors. Now, I said earlier, trypsin inhibitors are protein. If you have the correct protease, a protease is an enzyme that specifically breaks down or hydrolyzes protein. That enzyme, if it's designed correctly, can actually enzymatically break down the trypsin inhibitor. And our data seems to be uh, strongly suggest that this is a really good way of doing it, right? So not only are you going to have a dietary protease that can improve protein digestion, that's the kind of classical thinking of an enzyme. It improves nutrient digestibility, nutrient availability, improves feed efficiency. Well, if it can have a dual use case to also act as a mitigant of trypsin inhibitor exposure, well, that's another layer that can be added into this trypsin inhibitor exposure management strategy. Could you double up on any of those or would that be overkill? Could you double up? So could you, for example, increase the amount of protein or double up on the technologies? Technologies. So the heat plus the enzymes. Yeah. And that's another way. If it is truly makes sense from a financial standpoint, you have a really good cost position on this soy product or this ingredient, but you know it has trips inhibitors and you're, and you're willing to do that. For sure that works because that might actually be the best case scenario where you have that physical heat treatment, physical deactivation of the trypsin inhibitors from a, some sort of mechanical technology. And then after that heat treatment, you would have the protease enzyme applied afterwards. So that, that would be the best mode for, if, if someone was able to do that. So Rob, what else would you like our listeners to know? One of the takeaways here is that it's not only the soy ingredients have trypsin inhibitors. And this is actually a revelation for us. So at CBF Bioplatforms, we do a lot of work on ingredient analysis and compositional analysis. We like to think of ourselves as experts in this. And recently, we started a, a trypsin inhibitor survey where we're looking at individual ingredients and also uh, complete feeds and, and analyzing the amount of trypsin inhibitors in the lab in our, in our Calgary facility where we do this, this. We would call it the direct method directing that, analyzing the trypsin inhibitors. And, you know, it turns out that not only the soy have trypsin inhibitors, right? it, it's all legume, the peas, for example. Not a lot of pea, field pea usage in animal feeds in North America, but when prices get upside down on us, people start looking at, at peas, especially if there's a local source. 
you know, all of a sudden this pea byproduct coming from some sort of food grade facility might, might be attractive if it's across the road. The peas have trips inhibitors. What I found interesting was that even the grains, it's not so much corn, but on the harder grains, they, they have trypsin inhibitors too. And so uh, barley, for example, has 30% of the amount of trypsin inhibitors of soy. But depending on the ration you're pulling together, it could be used in the diet twice the level. And so that could be this sort of sleeping exposure that people just aren't aware of. And so analyzing the ingredients and analyzing the diet is important. And we're also seeing a huge variability on the amount of trips inhibitor in the final feed. If you look at the standard deviation is, is equal to the average. What that means is that feed, you analyze one batch of feed and it could have a trips inhibitor level of one. You analyze a similar formulation and it could be two. The batch-to-batch variability is, is huge. And so this is something we just need to be aware of and understand that the threshold of exposure doesn't take much to push that animal into a position of being uh, in negative exposure to, to these gypsum inhibitors. Well, I'd like to thank you, Rob, for providing this information today because it's really going to help our producers that are catching this episode. And also thank you to our listeners for tuning in. We'll catch you next time with more guests and topics related to the current ag climate.